Well, we continue in our series, Heaven is Our Eternal Home, with the message tonight, uh, the characteristics of the present heaven, and I've given you John 14 as our starting point. Uh, we're actually going to start in a passage of Scripture in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, and then get to John chapter 14, uh, making reference to a number of different Scripture passages as we have as we've gone along through this study. Uh, I uh, referred to the acronym uh, Rest in Peace, R-I-P, a common response in our culture uh, to someone's death in general. And I've made reference to that a couple of times along the way, mostly stating that not everybody is going to rest in peace. However, as we think about why we would even say such a thing, uh, we're mindful of the fact that death is a devastating event from a human perspective. It reminds us of the consequence of sin. It reminds us of the brevity of our time on this earth. It also points us to the necessity to be ready for what is yet to come uh, because this life is not all there is. From a secular perspective, the RIP acronym is intended to communicate a general respect for someone who has died. It also is intended from the attitude of giving condolences to their friends and family, the people that were close to them. And of course, for Christians, the reality is God does give us peace. He gives us peace even in the midst of the devastating event of death in our own lives or in the life of someone that we love and is dear to us. That phrase is interesting from where it came from. Uh, It is actually from a Latin phrase that appeared, as we've noted before, on Christian gravestones beginning about the 8th century, and then it became widespread on Christian gravestones by the 18th century. And really what it reflects is the hope that there is, in fact, relief from death and an escape from turmoil in eternity. And as Christians, we believe that death is not the end. We believe that it is the beginning of life in heaven with Jesus, our Savior. Uh, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible reminds us uh, repeatedly that we are not citizens ultimately of this earth. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And it's also significant to note that the Bible is our only authoritative source for truth about heaven. It's the only trustworthy source of information about the afterlife. So while we might uh, exercise some conjecture, even in the coming weeks as we think about some of the details that aren't spelled out in the scripture about heaven, or if we hear what other people's ideas or opinions are about heaven, we know that all of those are always constrained by the authority of scripture, that we cannot go further than what the scripture goes and have any confidence about it. Now, by way of review, so far in this series, we've covered eternity past and the heavens, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, then the body and the soul, the material and the immaterial, then what happens to believers at death. Uh, We focused last time on how the soul of the believer goes immediately to be with God while the body of the believer remains on earth awaiting the final resurrection. And then uh, 
it is possible from what the scripture indicates that the soul of the believer will exist in some sort of temporary body until the return of Jesus. But we're not dogmatic about that because the scripture doesn't provide much clarity uh, to that end. And while your soul will separate from your body, there will never be a point in time at which you will cease to exist. Every person who has been created in the image of God and who has been given life will live forever either with God or apart from God. Now, Peter spoke of the last days and of what we should anticipate in those. And I make reference to this because the truth is there will literally be a new heavens and a new earth in the future. Uh, Now, we're going to come back to this subject in depth, so my point is not to cover it uh, in depth tonight, but rather to introduce it so that I can show you the contrast between what I think the present state of heaven is. So I want to read some verses from 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 5 and read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to drop down uh, to verse 10. So listen carefully. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in that way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So the idea is this. There will in the future be the new heavens and a new earth. And as I said, we're going to come back to this subject in depth, but it raises the question, what about the present heaven? What is heaven currently like? Well, we know the subject is certainly important. Uh, Billy Graham uh, wrote quite a bit on heaven, as you might imagine, being an evangelist and preaching the gospel as he did. And he wrote uh, on what the Bible says about heaven in an article just several years before he went to be with the Lord. And he noted that there are references to heaven in one form or the other in 54 out of 66 books in the Bible. He said Jesus mentions heaven multiple times. And he said, if someone asks you about heaven, you can say with assurance, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And of course, that's a reference Uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But what a promise that we have an assurance that there's something else coming beyond this life. Now let's focus for a moment on John chapter 14. Now I'll begin reading here in John chapter 14 and verse 1. Uh, I know that the slide says 1 through 3, but I'm going to read all the way through verse 6. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, uh, believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions. And I'm reading this from the New King James Version. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, after all, the disciples had good reason for concern. Jesus told them that one of among them was uh, going to be a traitor. Uh, all would deny him, and then they would eventually leave him and scatter away from him. And yet he says in the midst of all of this, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Firmly put your faith in me and put your faith in God. And it was Jesus who spoke with complete confidence about heaven. He spoke about his father's house. He knew that there would be plenty of room in heaven for all who believe in him. And he said that he was going to prepare a place for his people out of love. He was confident about our arrival with him. And the entire focus of heaven, as we'll see in just a few minutes, is on the presence of God. Jesus does not say here that he would show us a way. He said that he is the way. Jesus did not promise to teach us a truth. Jesus said that he is the truth. Jesus did not offer us secrets to life. He said that he is the life. And the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. Now, I don't want to be uh, unclear about this tonight, so here's the basic idea that I'm coming from in this message. The present heaven and the eternal heaven are not finally one in the same. One is the heaven that we go to when we die before the return of Jesus. The other is the heaven we will know after the return of Jesus when he comes to make all things new. Randy Alcorn wrote that books on heaven often fail to distinguish between the intermediate and eternal states uh, using one word for heaven, all-inclusive. But this is an important distinction. The present heaven is a temporary lodging until the return of Christ and our bodily resurrection. The eternal heaven and the new earth is our eternal home. And I think that's what Peter indicates, and that's why I shared that scripture with you kind of to set the stage for where we're going with this in this particular study. Now, theologians use different words or terms um, interchangeably uh, somewhat uh, to describe the distinction. Uh, Some use the phrasing, the present heaven versus the future heaven. Others use the phrasing, intermediate heaven versus the eternal heaven. Uh, Those are uh, basically one and the same. Uh, interchangeably as far as the terms are concerned. So I've chosen to use the terms uh, or terminology present heaven uh, really to describe this. So Christians who die today, what we're sure about, go immediately to be in the presence of God. There's no soul sleep. uh, There's no holding tank. There's no purgatory. There's none of that stuff. 
we close our eyes here and we breathe our last breath here on this earth and we are immediately then in the presence of God. But what we know is that upon the return of Jesus, he is going to raise the dead and judge each person. And those who are in the present heaven at that time will then have their bodies and their souls reunited upon the resurrection. So in our remaining time tonight, let's consider some characteristics of the present heaven. Characteristic number one is the present heaven is a place. The present heaven is a place. Now, admittedly, we run into some difficulties when we try to explain with our limitations of space and time language the conditions that are ultimately beyond time and space. Or to state it another way, uh, we are limited in the fact that we use finite words to describe infinite conditions. We try to express what is, in a sense, the inexpressible. So in order to do that effectively, then we try to look to the Scripture and speak from the Scripture uh, with authority on what we believe to be true, understanding that God's ways are not our ways, and His way is higher than our way, and there are some things that are ultimately still somewhat a mystery. The old preacher Alexander McLaren wrote about the physical theories of the future life, and he said, some of them read more like a book of travels in this world than they do forecastings of the next. They may be true or they may not, but he said it does not matter a whit. I believe that heaven is a place, and I believe that uh, the future of that place is essential to our future life and the perfection of it. I believe that Christ wears and will wear forever a human body. And I believe that that involves locality, circumstances, and external occupations. Now, the Bible uh, assumes that heaven is a real place. It's a literal place. It's not just some ethereal existence. It's not something that is beyond comprehension. Isaiah 66 in verse 1, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So we know that heaven is a location somewhere. Now, it is not necessarily up in a spatial sense. However, the language conveys that it is something that is infinitely higher than anything that we presently know. And it is uh, appropriate for us to say going up to heaven where God is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we looked at it uh, several sessions back where the Apostle Paul referred to the third heaven. He's talking about the heavenly realm. It is referred to as paradise in that passage. Uh, the location in the description is separate from the first heaven where he refers to the atmosphere as we know it on earth. And then the second heaven being basically outer space. And then the third heaven uh, being where God dwells. So we can rightly say that heaven is the place where God, angels, and people who have died dwell. Now there's a reference that I'm not going to read in uh, Job chapter 1 and 2 
uh, where there's a reference to the present heaven. And there's some dynamics there that we could spend a whole nother session on that we want uh, this evening. But at least once, uh, Satan had access to come before God and his holy angels and to make request of him. Uh, the scripture says that Satan was going to and fro on the earth and was walking up and down it, and he came to where the Lord was. So if he came to where the Lord was, that indicates, even in that little simple illustration, that there is a place that represents where God is. We talked about the throne of God early on. Uh, we talked about the, the presence of God being represented by the throne of God, although there is no single location that uh, can contain God because God is omnipresent. He's the only being in the universe that is the triune God has the omnipresent characteristic about himself. Uh, but even in that, it speaks to where he rules from. Also, uh, Wayne Grudem, the theologian, pointed out that in the example of Stephen that we looked at uh, previously as well, that uh, Stephen did not see just symbols of a state of existence. It was rather that his eyes were open to see a spiritual dimension of reality, which God has presently hidden from us from being able to see with our own eyes, but nonetheless, it exists. The reality of it exists in uh, God's creation. Uh, Jesus lives there in his physical resurrected body. Uh, he's waiting even now for the time when he will return to the earth. And then there's another example of heaven as a place in Revelation 4. Now, I understand that Revelation 4 is talking about the vision that the Apostle John was given of heaven. But I don't think the fact that it was a, a spiritual vision that he was given uh, diminishes the fact that it could also be, and in fact was, an actual place that he was given a vision of. And he entered through uh, heaven through a door in the sky. He finds himself in heaven before the throne of God. He was in a realm that was beyond this world. And no specific location is given, uh, though there are references made of looking down at what was taking place on the earth. And when you get over to Revelation 7, heaven is said to be uh, essentially beyond the earth, and even larger than the earth because the angels are depicted as standing at the four corners of the earth. And then uh, of heaven, it is said that there are scrolls in heaven. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, martyrs who wear clothes, elders who have faces, and even people with palm branches in their hands. There are musical instruments as, and Horses that eventually are coming into and out of heaven. And all of these things are symbolic of something that is a physical place. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus himself ascended back into heaven. Why would he need to ascend back into heaven unless heaven was, in fact, a place? D.L. Moody told of an acquaintance uh, whose only child had died. And uh, the great evangelist, of course, many years ago. And the accompanying sorrow was so great that his, the heart uh, of this person was almost broken by it. 
And he said before he suffered that loss, he had never really given serious thought about life after death. And then shortly after the child had been buried, the friends and relatives of the man were surprised to see that he had developed this deep interest in the Bible. He would read it continually. And when someone asked him about his sudden interest in the sacred book, he answered that he was trying to find out something about the place where his boy had gone. He had come to the only source of satisfaction and reliable information. An instant after death, the departed saint will know more about heaven than all the saints here on earth presently know about it. But until we're called home to be with the Lord in that place, our knowledge is confined to what the Holy Spirit has shown to us through God's word. And those aren't the only examples, but those are some that at least point you in the direction of the fact that the present heaven is a place. Characteristic number two, the present heaven is a place of peace in the presence of God. The present heaven is a place of peace in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 57 says the righteous person perishes, verse 1, and no one takes it to heart. The faithful are taken away with no one realizing that the righteous person is taken away because of evil. He will enter into peace and they will rest on their beds, everyone who lives uprightly. Now, Isaiah, obviously, in that context, was talking about people who were persecuted for their faith. He was talking about the evil that was coming against the righteous people of God who were persecuted by the wicked leaders of Judah. Uh, But God would not forsake them. God would use the circumstances to bless them. He would eventually remove them from the very presence of evil, and in doing so would permit them to be in his presence. Now, the scripture is clear that God himself is the source of our peace. We don't know a lot of peace in this life, at least from earthly circumstances. Um, There are many things that cause uh, peace to be fleeting, but when we find our peace in God, then we anchor down in something, and more importantly, in someone who is far greater than any circumstance that we might experience. And God has established a covenant of peace with us, and he's done that through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the blood of Jesus that we have the peace of God. And when we are at peace with God, then we can have the peace of God because we're trusting in him. And there's going to be peace in the age to come. And the only reason there's going to be peace in the age to come is because of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And part of that peace in the age to come indicates that it's going to be the absence of sin, uh, the absence of sorrow, the absence of stress. All those things are going to characterize the peace that we have in heaven. And that's why Jesus said that we can come to him. He said, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think that the presence of God in heaven is the most important truth about heaven. I think it's so important, I'm going to say it again. I think that the presence of God in heaven is the most important truth about heaven. Or to restate it another way, uh, God is the point of heaven. And if we miss that, then we've really missed what the treasure of our salvation is all about. 
you might have seen some years back, uh, Mitch Album uh, wrote a best-selling novel entitled The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And uh, that novel, of course, is, is fictional. It portrays a man who feels lonely and unimportant like a lot of people do. And he dies and he goes to heaven and he meets five people there who tell him ultimately why his life mattered. And he discovers what's basically referred to as forgiveness and acceptance without God and without Christ as the focus of saving faith. So at the heart of it, the five people you meet in heaven is not about a relationship with God. It's only about human relationships. And if we think that heaven is primarily about human relationships rather than the primacy of our relationship with God, then we've entirely missed the point about the blessing of what it will be to be in God's presence forever. Now, Revelation speaks of uh, the vision of heaven as given to the Apostle John. I've already referenced that tonight, but I want to go back to some verses there. uh, Because in Revelation 1 and verse 17, he says, When I saw him, speaking of the Lord Jesus... He said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now let's think just for a moment about John, the beloved apostle, what he had experienced. Here was a person who knew Jesus on the earth. He had spent three years with Jesus on the earth. And even the time that he spent with Jesus in the physical presence of Jesus on the earth, it did not adequately prepare him to see what he saw in the revelation of Jesus in his heavenly glory. Now, it was, in a sense, a miracle that Jesus could uh, shield his glory and his authority, in a sense, uh, while he walked on the earth because People could not fully embrace all that that was or stand to be in that measure of glory. But when John fell before Jesus, the Lord, of course, comforted him and told him to not be afraid. And the scripture indicates that Jesus is the first and the last. He lives uh, and was dead, and he is alive forevermore and has the keys to Hades and death. Now, I want you to think for a moment what it'll be like someday when life on this earth is over, we draw our last breath, we make our exit, our heavenly flight from this life to the next. Can you imagine the moment when we lay eyes on Jesus? It's hard to even fathom because we're so limited by our, our own sin and limited by the world and limited by short-sightedness and limited by distractions and all that stuff. But there's going to be a moment for everyone who is saved when we're in the presence of the Lord and we're going to see him in all of his glory. There'll be many things that we enjoy about heaven, but the most important focus about heaven is the focus on God. Psalm 36 and verse 8 and 9 says, They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream, for the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we will see. Understand, God alone is the fountain of life. And without him, there could be no life of abundance, 
there could be no eternal delights. The psalmist said in Psalm 63 and verse 1, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. The greatest gift that God could give us is the gift of himself. Psalm 73 and verse 25 says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. So think about it this way. A longing for heaven is a longing to know God. But now let's think about that conversely. The person who claims to know God, but yet is not longing for his presence, is not longing for God. Now, this is, a, this is a reality check for all of us. We long for a lot of things. We long for our, our pleasures on this earth, what we want to do, what we think is important, what we want to spend our time on, what we value, what we take priorities in. But the greater question is, do we long for, do we desire to know the God who has given us physical life, who sustains us with his presence and peace, in this life, and who promises us that we will be with him forever. You remember as it unfolded in the Bible, God manifested his glory in the tabernacle. God manifested his glory in the temple. God became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus, who is the radiance, the exact representation of the glory of God. God indwells his people at at salvation in the Holy Spirit. And then God's people will live with him eternally. So characteristic number two about the present heaven is that the present heaven is a place of peace in the presence of God. Characteristic number three, the present heaven is a place of praise and purpose in the presence of God. Now back to this vision that John had of heaven. A scroll is referenced with uh, seven seals containing the judgments of God. And as each seal is broken in the future, a new judgment is unleashed on the earth. Of course, following the seal judgments are the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments. Uh, The prelude to the opening of the seven seals in John's vision is a search for someone who is worthy to open the heavenly scroll in Revelation 5. You remember nobody was found worthy of breaking the seals and opening the scroll. And as John wept over that unopened scroll and those unbroken seals, he received good news. And the good news is in Revelation 5, in verse 5 through 7, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Church, I want you to know that heaven will be a place of praise. And the present heaven is in fact already a place of praise. Scripture continues in Revelation 5 and verse 13. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now obviously this is about uh, something that is going to come in the future. But it's a reminder to us that there is only one who is worthy to open the scroll There is only one who is worthy to open the seals. There's only one who is worthy to pronounce judgment on the world. And at this moment, we're not going to focus specifically on all the details of all that's going on in that passage, but rather on those who are around the throne in this vision and what we can learn about the present heaven from them. So let's look for a moment at Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at two Uh, brief passages in Revelation 6 and then also a little bit longer one in uh, Revelation 7. And I'm going to pick up reading in Revelation 6 and verse 9. And we're going to focus here on those who are under the altar and what we might learn about the conditions of the present heaven from them. Revelation 6 beginning in verse 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So what's John seeing here? Well, he's seeing around the throne a vast number of tribulation saints who have been martyred. And we gain some insight here into what the present heaven is like prior to the return of Jesus. Let's drop down to Revelation 7, and I'm going to pick back up reading in verse 9. Taking us a little bit further in, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know, and then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Context, future event. Prior to 
the second coming. So what do we learn from their existence in heaven? Well, I think we're reminded once again that when people die on the earth, where do they go? They go to a place called heaven. There is a continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in heaven. Not only that, but the history of the martyrs on the earth extends into heaven in relation to their service to God. I think we find here also that people in the present heaven are going to be individuals, that we will be recognizable, the essence of who God created us to be. We will be able to express ourselves. The scripture indicates here that the saints cried out with a loud voice. So they're fully rational. They're completely conscious. They are aware of themselves and of God. And not only are they fully conscious and fully rational and able to call out to God, but even so, God answers their question. And I believe that in the present heaven, there will be some knowledge, at least apparently from these passages of Scripture, of what's happening on the earth. Now, will that be the case in the new heavens and the new earth, in the final eternity of it all? I do not know for sure. But these martyrs knew enough to realize uh, that those who had killed them had not yet been judged. They have a concern for justice. They even remembered their lives on the earth in the sense that they had been killed. And I think this is also going to be true of us because if we are going to give an account of our lives on earth at the beam of judgment seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, then that's going to require for us to have some recollection of our specific actions and our specific words. Why else would God bring these things to the forefront? Not again in terms of forgiveness or not forgiveness of our sins. Those are going to be the lost people that are at the great white throne judgment. We'll get to that later. But in terms of the Bema judgment seat, in terms of our eternal reward and our accountability to God and our responsibility for how we've lived our Christian lives, we're going to have to remember that stuff if, in fact, God is going to bring it to bear on our judgment and on our reward. And I believe that people in the present heaven are going to live in anticipation of the fulfillment of the will of God. These martyrs are said to have uh, lived in anticipation, basically, of the fulfillment of the will of God because they're told that they got to wait a little while longer. Uh, they're also aware of time because they ask the question, how long, Lord? So at least they know that there's some time and spatial existence of earth that is, in fact, different from the eternity of heaven, but at the same time, uh, unfolds in time as we would recognize it. And when we encounter the all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, and eternal God, we will be overcome with his glory and we will in turn worship him. This is a key part of heaven is that God will be glorified for all of eternity, that we will praise him. And I believe that the present heaven is a place of praise and it's a place of purpose in the presence of God. So there's not going to be anything that's going to be boring there. Can you imagine thinking that you're going to be bored? If you think you're going to be bored in heaven, you're probably lost. 
That's probably the reality because you've not understood the, the magnitude of the glory of God, even begun to try to fathom it because it'll go far beyond any limited thoughts that you could come up with in this life. And I'm going to come back to a verse in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11 as I come toward a close of the message tonight. And here's what it says. It is clear, he's speaking now in light of these truths about what's to come in the future, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, all the things that are going to happen. He says, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Now, let me tell you, if you truly believe that you're going to be in the presence of the God of all eternity, who holds all power and all justice and all of eternity in his hands, if you truly believe that, and if you understand that you're going to be accountable for your life, and if you begin to worship and think about all the glory and the blessings of heaven itself, it will shake you to the core, and it will drive you to be a person who wants to be holy in conduct and godliness because you know you're waiting for something that is still to come. You're waiting for the day of God, and even so, you're hastening its coming as you pray for the return of Jesus. I share this with you, and I'm going to close. Lehman Strauss, the Bible teacher, wrote this. He said, heaven, a comforting word is this, but who among us mortal creatures can envision its blessed reality? Neither the artist's brush, the sculptor's chisel, nor the theologian's exegesis can depict the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The wonder, the glory of the home of the redeemed will be seen only through the eyes of the redeemed when we awake in the presence of Christ. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as I am known. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12. And then he says this, Still we are not left alone to grope in dark ignorance. A foretaste of glory divine has been preserved for us upon the pages of God's eternal and unerring word. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we think about these promises.